HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hello, welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Wednesday, February 15th, 2023, and this is our 349th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is an award-winning documentary filmmaker who recently released a wonderful documentary on the late chef Charlie Trotter, and I will introduce her fully in a moment. First, as I do in every show, I will start out with my PR tip. Then later, we'll have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to stick with your vision. Have confidence in yourself and your ideas and the process of executing them. Be willing to go against the tide or general way of thinking and do things differently, and in the way that drives you. The world would be a boring and uninspiring place if there weren't dreamers and doers. So let's all go for it, whatever it may be, and follow our vision. That's my tip today. Okay, I'm thrilled to have my guest joining me. It is Rebecca Halpern. She's a documentary filmmaker whose work includes multiple seasons, directing, writing, and producing the hit series, American Greed and Gangland, and the critically acclaimed six-part limited series, Helter Skelter, which she co-executive produced for Epics. Her award-winning feature documentary, Love Charlie, The Rise and Fall of Chef Charlie Trotter, won Best of the Fest at the 2021 Chicago International Film Festival and was acquired by Greenwich Entertainment. I could go on about all of Rebecca's other accomplishments and films, but let's get to it. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Sherry. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to chat with you and have you on the show and really dive into your career in this this beautiful film that just came out. And I was so happy to see it at one of your premieres and, and meet you in New York recently. So um it's 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 really a thrill to 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 get to know you and as some of my listeners may know, or all of them may know at this point, I am a former server at Charlie Trotter's restaurant in Chicago. So I have a, a deep connection to, to him, the restaurant, and your film. So this, this show is very special to me. Well, you know, Sherry, I hate to say it, but you're not unique in that experience. I will tell you, it's been remarkable watching and seeing how many people Charlie Trotter influenced throughout uh, their careers, um, and and what a what an imprint he left on all of them. And it's also remarkable to think that you know, for all of the difference that he made in people's lives, his legacy, you know 
pretty much stands to be lost to time. And um, that was one of the main reasons why we needed to make this movie was because for all the contributions that he made to American fine dining, um, you know, and, and American cuisine in general, um, you know, he deserves to have a place, you know, in the pantheon of great American chefs. Yes, 100%. Um, I'm so glad you did the film and I want to, we'll talk all about it. Before we do though, I always like to go back with my guests and find out a little about their background and how they got into their careers today. So do you want to take us back a little bit of to what, what led you into becoming a filmmaker? Sure. So um, I was a theater major as an undergrad. I got my master's degree in journalism. I was going to, I wanted to be a reporter actually on television. Um, and then life uh, took me away from local news into the world of long form documentary television, mostly true crime. Um, these hour long series like what you see today, American Greed on CNBC, Gangland on History Channel, the first 48 and after the first 48 on A&E. Um, and one thing led to another in my career. And um, I just fell deeper and deeper into the documentary space. Um, after doing true crime for a while, you tend to get a little bit burned out because they're very difficult stories to tell both from an emotional perspective in terms of working with people to get them to relive the worst moments in their lives, but also from a storytelling perspective, because true crime is one of the most difficult genres to write. So many twists and turns, so many red herrings. You have to pay off every thread that you establish in the beginning of each episode. And so, um, you know, for me, I was getting tired of that. I wanted to try some other things. So I developed a show about aliens that I sold to um, Animal Planet with Ridley Scott. And then I developed another series about the elements of the periodic table that I did with Bob Zemeckis, the director of Back to the Future. I did a political piece with Common, the rapper actor. Um, and I have a piece now that's being uh, produced. It's in production for Hulu um, that I'm making with Ellen Dakota Fanning currently. Wow. So, um, <laughs> nice lineup. Been, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's been interesting. And, you know, I was not the generator of the idea for the Charlie Trotter movie. That came to me through uh, the producer Renee Frigo from Oak Street Pictures who had created Lucini olive oil, which I'm sure many of your listeners know. Um, Charlie Trotter discovered Lucini. He brought it with him on Oprah. And you can imagine what that did for her business, for Renee's business. Um, and when Charlie died, she wanted to pay homage to a man who had a huge impact on her and her life. And um, she decided to pursue making a feature documentary. First, she made a short film, and then she made a feature. Or then she, you know, and she partnered up with Ray Harris, who is a um, well-known well-known gourmand in certain circles. Um, and together, they went forward with the feature. I was lucky enough to be recommended by Common's team to direct. And, um, you know, it's funny because I really feel like it could have been my story to tell. I grew up in Chicago. I went to his high school. You know, my mother was a food writer in the 80s and 90s in Chicago. And I witnessed his entire rise. Um, and so, you know, walking into that meeting, that first meeting with Renee, I just had this feeling in my bones like this was my story to tell. And I'm just so grateful for the opportunity. Um, to, to tell it. And, you know, getting his family on board to participate, Lisa Ehrlich, his first wife, um, Norman Van Aken and Emeril and so, you know, Wolfgang Puck and so many others who, are, who participated in the film. Everyone was so open and forthcoming and honest. And, you know, you really can't make an excellent documentary without that kind of unvarnished raw approach to the storytelling. And so, um, you know, that's a credit to Ann Trotter, Hincamp, and Donna Lee, that they kind of set the tone insofar as being willing to give that 360 degree view 
of their very, very complicated son and brother, you know, um, his story. I don't think that you can tell his story without taking a warts and all approach, considering how well known his highs were as well as his lows. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's, it's just a, I don't know, earlier today, I just rewatched the, the short trailer. And I just have to say, I just watching that was the same feeling I got watching the whole full film. It's like my heart, I don't know, it was very, it's just very heartfelt. It just, it's very moving to see. And you really were able to capture, I don't know, so much emotion, at least from me and, um, I that's how I felt with his story and and having all the personal um uh personal relationships that you interviewed as a part of it it definitely yeah you tied it together so nicely and made it into this this beautiful film that it touched me it touched so many people and and Ray Harris just as a side note so when I was a server there back 1997 Ray was a regular that's how I know Ray um, he flew in to Chicago at dinner and, and all the time. He was always there. I have a gift from him of this beautiful necklace that he gave all the servers as like a holiday gift. I mean, or he gave us so generous, wasn't? It's just so generous. Yeah, and I I remind. I mean, it's like so. I have this long term relationship with him. He is in the film. Well, he's a he's a major part of it. And and and, and as you said, between him and Renee of putting it together. Um, so for people who haven't seen it, which everyone should see it, tell us a little bit about like how the, the film is put together, because there were also many elements of of Charlie or Chuck, as he's referred to, um, that I didn't know, like with the postcards. So the film, uh, the, fi the thesis of the film is that um, Charlie Trotter's, it, it's about what can happen, it's a cautionary tale of what can happen when your identity becomes consumed by your work. And the film is divided into, well, it's divided into three acts, but really I, I like to say there was pre-Charlie -Char Trot, Chef Charlie Trotter, which everyone who knew him before he opened the restaurant called him Chuck. And then there was Charlie Trotter after the restaurant. Um, and what the film depicts is Chuck, this wide-eyed, passionate, you know, fun-loving, eccentric, intellectual, um, you know, kid, it depicts him becoming, falling in love with the art of cuisine and then deciding to open his restaurant and then play, having, re recognizing that to succeed at the level that he wants to succeed, he needs to assume the role of Chef Charlie Trotter. He needs to play Charlie Trotter. And in the film, we tell the story of how they came to name the restaurant. Initially, um, you know, everybody was talking about it. Uh, what are we going to name it? Chuck's, Chuck Trotter sounded like a steakhouse. So that was out. Charlie wanted to do something a little more elevated and sophisticated. And the marketing people said, why not Charlie Trotter's? And, um, but Charlie had never been known as Charlie up until that point. He was always Chuck. And so, you know, for the next 25 years of the restaurant's life, we chronicle sort of his identity becoming more and more um, consumed by the restaurant, by the work, by the role of Chef Charlie Trotter. And at the end of the 25 years, he closed the restaurant in year 25 and died a year later. And we argue in the movie, it's because he uh, just couldn't get back in touch with his true self, which was Chuck. And so to tell that story, we were really fortunate because we had a lot of postcards and letters that Ch Chuck had written to the people in his life, uh, namely his first wife, Lisa Ehrlich, um, throughout their courtship. Um, and we had a lot of photographs of Chuck. We had home video, um, dozens of hours of home video. And so, um, you know, I'm, I think that, you know, going back to that 360 degree well-rounded view of Chef Charlie Trotter, you know, you can't tell the after story without knowing the before. 
So yeah, um, those those archival materials were really key for us in terms of illustrating that evolution of Chuck to Charlie. Yeah, it's so funny because I can't. That's one thing I can't. I can't identify with him as being called Chuck. Like it just. It's Charlie to me, you know, <laughs> um, but hearing the background story and, and that like his, I mean, working, well, as someone who had worked there, like I always, when people ask me about him, will just say he was, I thought he was a very nice, nice man, person to work for actually, but I found he was very intense and he was a perfectionist. And that was, you know, that's hard. That's hard to have those expectations with guests coming in every night for like the meal of their lifetime and being responsible for it. Um, and it was intense, but it was, um, so So I don't know, when I hear the name Chuck, I, I feel like it's more, <laughs> it doesn't feel as intense to me, but hearing the background was really, really special. And also seeing the footage of, the pass and the chef's table and even the locker room and just things. I mean, you really, you really captured, captured um, the restaurant for a time also where not everyone, I did not have a cell phone at the time taking pictures of everything. And I, I don't have as document. I haven't didn't document that time in my life. Like I do today. So I think it's also um, it's very cool. You were able to pull all that material together. Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, Charlie Trotter, there's an element of performance with him. I don't think that anything that he did was purely, you know, without an awareness of that he was being watched. People had eyes on him all the time and he liked it. He put a kitchen, a table in the middle of his kitchen because he wanted to be on display. He wanted to perform. Um, that was a role and that he was playing. And, um, you know, he invited cameras into his kitchen all the time. There were, you know, there was a lot of news coverage about him because of all the groundbreaking innovations that he was doing. Um, and, and he wasn't shy and he wasn't shy about speaking his mind and saying a thing or two that, you know, raised some eyebrows and, and, and drew eyeballs to him. Um, so we were fortunate that all of that material existed because I'll tell you in documentary filmmaking, if you don't have archival materials, if you don't have footage or photos or anything else that you can get your hands on, you know, you are essentially up a Creek because, you know, that's the stuff that makes the story authentic. And when you look at our film, we had so much archival material. It almost became like a museum exhibition on the screen insofar as how much we were able to use that archival material to help tell the full story. Um, you know, we started production on day one of the COVID lockdown. And, you know, but for that archival material, but for all that found footage and the photographs and the correspondence, we would not have been able to have afforded making the kind of movie that we wanted to make. Um, we were lucky because, you know, we couldn't go and shoot in kitchens because everybody was wearing masks and gloves, or maybe they weren't even open at that point. Um, and I didn't want anyone to come away from this movie thinking it had been made during COVID. And I think that we succeeded in that. So. Yeah, you certainly did. And yeah, the only, it's, I, I found an old folder of mine of Charlie Trotter's and I have a bunch of old menus from like 1997 and eight. And it's, it's cool. I kept that. Um, I'm still looking for some photos yeah. <laughs> um, because it's just, it's, it's crazy to think. I mean, as I said, like now we're so used to having um, everyone has a phone and documents everything. So um it was a different time period, but amazingly, my memory is pretty is very strong of that period, and and he did have so much influence on on my life and my career, and I and and my tip also today. I was thinking of him when I wrote it, being like to stick with your vision and to go for it because he did. He went he went against the grain and 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 made such an impact. He did. You know, it's funny, Sherry. I mean. Um, 
I think he had nothing to lose, frankly, to be honest. His father was bankrolling him in the beginning. Um, you know, whether the thing succeeded or not, it was not, he wasn't sticking his neck out there insofar as the financial investment in the restaurant. But that being said, you know, whether you come from means or not, you have to have talent, you have to have an outrageous work ethic, and you have to be willing to, to dedicate yourself to this pursuit of excellence every single day to achieve even a fraction of what Charlie Trotter achieved, you know? And um, I still think whether you come from means or not, it's admirable. No one is going to achieve what Charlie did just by virtue of, of where they come from. It take, you know, you can have yeah. some help opening the door, but, but, but you got to keep yourself in the game. And he did for 25 years. Um, earlier, Sherry, you had mentioned that, you know, you learned so much from him and, you know, that he was a perfectionist. It's funny. Um, he really didn't like that word. Did you know that? No, but I also do not like the word. <laughs> But I think, I, I mean, I will define it as you aim for, you know, you aim for perfection or to be, but to be a perfectionist, um, I don't like that word. But no, I don't know if I knew he didn't like it. He created, he said, you know, he thought perfection was boring. And he said that in, instead of a perfectionist, he thinks of himself as an excellentist. Okay. Which is all about the process. And if you think about perfection, it's all about the outcome. And so, you know, Charlie Trotter was invested in, in, in the micro details of the process to the nth degree, to a degree that most people aren't right. Like how you, he right. had his, he had his staff cleaning the dumpsters in the back of the restaurant. They wore tape on the bottoms of their shoes to collect lint off the carpeting. I mean, the way he would close, you know, if someone slammed a cabinet, he would say to them, you have to close it like a poet, you know? I mean, like he was a little nutty that way, but at the same time, you know, his point was imbue everything you do with care and love and you will achieve excellence it might not be perfect in the end, but it will be excellent. And you'll have, you know, gone leaps and bounds farther than someone who set the bar much lower for themselves. Yeah, no, that I, I, I 100% get that. And I, I have his book on my um, bookshelf, Lessons of Excellence. And so excellence definitely, uh, I definitely, I, I, I see that, um, yeah, the word perfectionist, I don't know. It's one of those words. <laughs> you know what the problem with perfectionism is as it relates to the culinary world is that that, that word causes more, more harm than good, not just in the culinary world, but in the world at large. You know, um, a lot of extremely talented people have killed themselves, literally, trying to achieve perfection and uh, maintain perfection. And that to me is just a horrible, horrible constricting way to live, to constantly be measuring yourself against whatever that idea of perfection is. Yeah, very, very true. So with the film, with um, promoting it in this the past year, how, Tell us a little about it. You've been traveling around the country. You've been showing at different festivals. We finished the film in 2021. It premiered at the Chicago International Film Festival, where it won Best of the Fest. We had three sold-out screenings, and all of the online links were sold out, which was remarkable. Um, each audience was packed with people who knew Charlie, who worked for Charlie, who you know, had heard of Charlie and wanted to know more about him. Um, and it was really um, seeing Chicago, you know, be so warm to the film was really um, remarkable for me as a hometown girl. Um, and then the film went on its merry way through the festival circuit. Um, we won 
the Audience Choice Award in San Diego, which was fun. Um, it went to Devour, which is the International Food Film Festival in Halifax, near Halifax, Nova Scotia. Um, that was pretty awesome to go up there. Um, and then on the way back, we actually stopped in Montreal and ate at Toke, 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 which was fabulous. Um, really phenomenal. Um, one of the benefits of making a film like Charlie Trotter, uh, like one about Charlie Trotter is that it's, it becomes an entree to a world, to the culinary world and people, you know, the opportunities that we've had to dine in various places and with certain people have been really remarkable, you know, in New York at the premiere where you were, you know, to get to sit next to Wiley Dufresne and, and learn all about him and his career or to go out to dinner with Daniel Baloud or um, Rick Bayless did the Q and a in Chicago and, you know, um, Art Smith has been a huge supporter of the film. We have a screening coming up um, at South Beach Food and Wine Festival. Tyler Florence is going to be moderating um, with Norman Van Aken, who's an amazing, amazing chef who just opened Norman's in Orlando, um, and Michelle Geyer, who was Charlie's pastry chef. You know, Michelle was Michelle was there when I was there. Um, I remember I would go in early one day a week and help prep in the kitchen because I wanted more experience and I wanted some kitchen experience because I was on the front of the house and um, and also to mention Norman and also Emerald Lagasse. I mean, they're I don't know. Just mention it for people listening who might not know, but him the two of them and and charlie called themselves the triangle bunch and were a trio and i remember them coming and celebrating the 10-year anniversary when i was at the restaurant so um that's really special that norman is doing something now down down in in miami or south beach yeah yeah it's um Norman and Emerald and Charlie had a kind of mutual admiration society that doesn't come along very often. It reminded me a lot of like, you know, the artists of the 1920s in Paris, you know, how they would get together and compare notes and Hemingway and all of that. And it had that kind of vibe their friendship did. Um, so, yeah, no. So you captured that in the film, too. Yeah. And the film is available also on uh, for rent or purchase on Apple and Amazon. Um, and it's available in the U.S. and Canada. So we're working on getting broader distribution to Europe. It's it's almost every day that we get an email or a DM from someone asking, when's it coming to France? When's it coming to Italy? When's it coming to Australia? Because Tetsuya Wakuda was a good friend of Charlie's, you know when will we see it in Japan? And, you know, you don't really realize the reach that someone has until a film like this comes out. And so many people come out of the woodwork to um, inquire about it or engage with it. We get stories all the time from people about their time eating at Charlie Trotter's or working at Trotter's or the fact that they never got to go to Trotter's, but, but, you know, wanted to, um, and, you know, that feels really rewarding as a filmmaker to be able to have, you know, created a legacy piece that enables so many viewers to, you know, connect with that story. It's so true, because I could sit here and and name all these people that I know who who work there that I'm still connected with or where they are now. And, and I'm like one, one, one person who had that experience and, and yeah, so all these, so many people, um, as you said, that he, he impacted and, um, it's, it's really, it's really wonderful. You put this film together and, and you, it's, it's, yeah, if anyone hasn't seen it, go see it, um, check it out. And what, in putting it together, I guess, were, were you nervous at all with um, like how it would be received? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I guess uh, that's normal. <laughs> um, but, you know, to your point about staying true to your vision, you know, every, every artist, every filmmaker, anyone who, who d does a creative pursuit, they'll tell you that like, you can't get too caught up you can't get too caught up in the in the 
in the reception in what anybody thinks about it. it you have to stay remain true to the vision and to the story that you want to tell and I always wanted to tell a 360 degree view of Charlie. I only knew what the media told me about him and much of it was not flattering. And I had to think there had to be a why behind his behavior, you know, whether it was a struggle with alcohol, whether it was an illness that he had, which we reveal in the film, you know, whether it was just this, like this, you know, relentless pursuit of excellence. I just wanted to give enough of a broad, well-rounded picture that people could come away from this feeling some kind of empathy for him. Um, because I, I don't believe any behavior that anyone does comes out of nowhere. There's a reason for all of it. And, you know, we're all on a journey that nobody knows anything about. We're all fighting battles in our own personal lives that no one knows. And, the world could be a better place if we tried to connect with each other a little bit more and tried to have more empathy. Some people may argue that Charlie Trotter should have done that too uh, with some of his staff. And that is probably accurate, but nobody's, you know, I don't want to be apologizing for Charlie because there were things that happened in the restaurant that, you know, today wouldn't, wouldn't be acceptable, but at the same time, I admire what he was trying to accomplish. And when you're trying to do something that's so outlandishly amazing and remarkable and excellent, you know, you need a team of people who are marching to that same drummer. Otherwise, you will never achieve what your what your goals are. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I woke up every day at 530 in the morning thinking to myself, like, how can I be as excellent as Charlie Trotter? today and at the end of each day and sometimes I would work most time days I would work 20 hours a day because I just got so caught up in it you know I would say to myself damn I'm I really <laughs> that wasn't an excellent day but it was but it wasn't you know and I was constantly having that conversation with myself and at the end of the day for the budget that we had for the constraints that we had because of COVID for all of it. I'm really pleased with this story and I'm proud that, that we told it the way that we did. I didn't want to dig up his dirty laundry. I didn't want to go into his personal life other than to show that he had difficulty maintaining his relationships because of the restaurant. That was unnecessary. All of that was unnecessary, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, everything you said, I, I think is, is wonderful. And I agree with your perspective and um, I'm, I'm glad you put this, this film together that, you know, um, for people to, that have relationships with him to, to go back and, you know, see and, and touch with them in that way, like me and those who didn't know anything about him, but will learn a lot, so much from, from your film um, and connect. So um, it's really beautifully done. I, congratulations. And um, before we take a break, I have a question for my last guest for you. On episode 348, I had on Solasi Atadika. She's the chef and founder of Madunu, Madunu Chocolates and Madunu Institute, all based in Ghana, Africa. And Solasi wants to know, in looking over your body of work, how do you choose your subjects? What makes for a good story or a good character or personality? What makes you want to sink your teeth into that story? And I know you've you've pretty much answered that with Charlie already. So Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, in show business, a lot of times, you know, it, it takes a lot of years to get to a point where you are choosing your own subjects. Um, you first need to be lucky enough to be hired to tell stories. And, um, I, you know, so for me, true crime was something I fell into. Um, but it, it was a blessing on some level because, you know, I was able to make a difference for many victims, families in these crimes, but also, you know, learn how to tell great stories. Um, and, you know, the projects I developed for myself, you know, those are the things that I choose and I choose them because I want a change of subject matter or because they 
give me an entree to a world that I didn't have access to previously, or because I'm, I'm just inspired by, by a person or a thing, or just because maybe I noticed that no one had ever done a thing before, like the periodic table series, no one had ever done a show about the elements before. And I thought, Oh, why not? And let's do it. And, um, so that's how I make my choices, but I will say going forward now, you know, I realized in filmmaking, we're really fortunate that we can in certain circumstances, choose our subjects and who you choose becomes part of the fabric of your life. I've spent more time talking on the phone to Lisa Ehrlich than I can count or Ann Trotter, his sister, um, and, or Norman Van Aken for that matter. And these people, you know, that are trusting you to tell their stories and share their memories of their loved ones, you know, um, that's a gift and that's one that I'm grateful for. And so choosing who I'm going to, whose story I'm going to tell next, it's got to be someone who I want to spend a lot of time with. You know, I like to joke that I spent more time with Charlie Trotter during the pandemic than I did my own husband. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's that. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. And, um, great. On that note, let's take a little break. We will come back. We'll play my speed round, talk some industry news. I have my solo dining experience and the final question. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Rebecca Halpern. She is an award-winning documentary filmmaker who directed the recently released documentary, Love Charlie, The Rise and Fall of Chef Charlie Trotter. So Rebecca, it's time for my speed round game. What this is, is I'm gonna name a couple things and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. You ready? I am so ready. Just I just had this moment just thinking, saying that where I was like, I wish I could play this game with Charlie right now. (laughs) (laughs) But um, well, I can tell you what I think he would say, but I'm wrong, you know, some of them I could probably guess, but not all of them. But anyways, um, that was just thought ran through my head randomly, but we're going to play together. So here we go. Eat in at home or eat out at a restaurant? Eat in at home. Indoor dining or alfresco dining? Oh, geez. I have to pick one? Well, there's no rules to my game, but the idea is to pick one. But if you like both, you can say both. (laughs) If it was a temperate climate and indoor was too crowded, I would say outdoor. And if if indoor wasn't too crowded, I would say indoor. I'm kind of impartial at this point in the pandemic. I hear you. And it's, you know, I've been playing this game, this speed round on my show since I started this show in 2014. And I, I've had my standard ones, but that one I added in during the pandemic because it became more of a topic. Yeah. I mean, like last night we ate, we ate at um, Hudson House here in 
in LA and it, it's a newer seafood restaurant. And we sat inside and I didn't feel like I was going to catch COVID at any minute. And they didn't do any special spacing or anything. Um, but there are certain restaurants that when you walk into them, you're like, oh my God, I'm going to get sick right now. But you know, you, yeah. you, you know, I think we're all at a point where our level of comfort with the pandemic has changed from where it was, you know, two years ago. So, yeah, well, it's constantly changing and I think it's different. It's been different for everyone too. True. So, um, okay, let's keep going. Wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail, or champagne? Wine. (laughs) (laughs) How about tasting menu or a la carte? A la carte. Which is like a travesty considering the movie I made about Charlie Chaplin <laughs> who only served two tasting menus. The funny thing about my feelings about tasting menus are I feel like a tasting menu is a monologue of the chef to the diner. And just like certain people in the world, when you're when you have to eat 13, 15, 20 courses, or even 10 courses sometimes can start to feel a little long-winded, right? And like, you're like, I get it already. Okay, thank you. And I, I just don't like feeling the tyranny of the kitchen. There was a very famous article that came out while Charlie was still running his restaurant that talked about the tyranny of the tasting menu in Vanity Fair magazine. And um, yeah. And it does, it can feel oppressive and it can also feel one note after a while. You get it, you know, in some circumstances, but when it's a remarkable experience, you know, it's, it can be really outrageous and awesome. So. Yeah. And, and he was so ahead of the curve with doing tasting menu and vegetable tasting menu and all of that. Um, So yes, I hear you. But I do like an omakase, you know? Yeah, I love an omakase. Because there's something that's like <laughs> you really... You love sushi. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love sushi, but also like, you know, there's something, it's just, Japanese cuisine is just outside of, it. like it's it lives outside of sort of my regular food vocabulary, you know, that it all feels novel. You know, eating at Alinea was novel for me too in the first go around and it was all interesting you know but would I go back for the for another tasting menu at Alinea I don't know I mean how many how many different Cirque du Soleil's do you need to see before it's the same Cirque du Soleil every time well I remember I I did I dined there once and I remember the the word I used at the end was whimsical as as the of a tasting menu and it really was. And also I have to say, Grant Ackett's in, in your film, I, I thought he his he was an excellent he was an excellent part of the film, is all I'll say. I'm gonna t- I'm gonna and I'm gonna qualify what I just said about it being, you know, I wasn't comparing Grant's food to Cirque du Soleil, by the way. Um but please nobody take it that way. Grant Ackett's is a genius and it was an you know, what he added to our film was incredible. Um you know, I think that he's, he's brilliant and his, but his style of cooking is also very performative too, in its own way. So maybe it's not so different. Um, although Charlie did call it nonsense on stilts, you know, (laughs) I don't know. I don't know where I shake out on that, but I, you know, that whole, the whole dessert thing where, you know, where they, he he does it, he comes out and does it right on your table. I remember when he did that for us for the first time and it was really, it was really, you know, jaw dropping. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. It's true. And how many times can you watch that and say that you haven't seen that performance before? Do you know what I mean? I don't know. That's why like the movie, the menu out now, that's kind of, uh, in a sense, ridiculing all of this, but, right. but I don't know. Everyone I know that I've talked to about the movie either loves it or hates it. Um, Here's an interesting little tidbit about the the menu. I don't know if this was intentional or not. I'm guessing not. But you know how when she goes into his office and she sees the plaque on the wall of him standing in front yeah. of, the, uh, of the line yeah. at the hamburger place? The it's burger, like, yeah. It said August 1987, 
whatever he, the honor that he won. Well, that's when Charlie Trotter opened his restaurant in August. Uh-huh. So I don't know if that was a little Easter egg that they were trying to throw in there, but you know, Dominique Crenn was the was the consultant. There was a lot that was modeled after um, Chef Ackett's uh, work, and yeah, you know, ridicule or not, it is its own. You know, that's its own thing, and I think it deserves to have a place in in the world, in you know, the culinary world, just as anything else. I mean, my God. Yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised if I feel there there were probably a lot of as you like Easter eggs or nuggets in there that probably I'm I'm on board totally. Be, I watched it. I went to the theater and saw it, and I did not like it. I was I did not know I um it, I didn't realize it was such a black dark comedy. And, um, but I want to watch it again. I feel like the second time, the third time, you I'll pick up more things. And appreciate it more. Mm-hmm. So, um, but of course, you'd pick that up, being your your craft. <laughs> so when I saw it, I was like, "Oh my god!" I wonder if they did that intentionally or if they even knew. So, all right, um, okay, we've digressed. So back to the game: <laughs> small plates or large plates? Large plates. Well, do you mean large plates like family style or large plates like like entrees? Um, well, you can define however you want, but mostly I think I'm thinking family style large plates versus like small pl- little little plates. Um, yeah, large. I would say large plates. How about communal table or chef's counter? Communal table. Tipping or all inclusive charge? Tipping. Vegetable tasting menu or regular tasting menu? Regular. That one in there. You said regular? Yeah, regular sounds awful. Okay. Um, <laughs> no tripe for me, please. <laughs> ah, got it. Okay. Um, filming or editing? Editing. Two more. Cheese plate or dessert? Cheese plate. Mm, no, dessert. <laughs> I Both. All of the above. Right, you're going to have both. And Manhattan, Brooklyn, or Chicago? Are you are you still based in Chicago? No, I live in Los Angeles. You're in Los Angeles. When you were talking about the restaurant earlier, I was like, is she visiting or is she in LA? Okay. So all, all of those, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Chicago, or Los Angeles? Um, Los Angeles. Nice. Um, I like visiting there. <laughs> I like visiting Manhattan. <laughs> All right. Well, we can visit each other. <laughs> Dine out. There's some great restaurants that are opening here now. It's it's kind of exci- an exciting time here in LA for food. Definitely. I find when I, I was out there maybe a year and a half ago and I just find I start running around and I have too many places to go. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's the game. That was fun. So um, for industry news, it's not really an article I have, but I have from the website, U.S. Department of State title is Diplomatic Culinary Partnership. And this is something that just came up last week. Uh, So the Diplomatic Culinary Partnership embraces and utilizes food, hospitality, and the dining experience as diplomatic tools to engage foreign dignitaries, bridge cultures, and strengthen relationships with civil society. And in partnership with the James Beard Foundation, the Department of State has curated the American Culinary Corps, which is a network of more than 80 of the U.S.'s influential chefs and culinary professionals who participate in programs and events on behalf of the uh, Department of State in the United States and abroad to foster cross-cultural exchange. So this last week, I think it was February 9th, I saw a bunch of chefs I know um, of these 80 chefs were all at the White House um, uh, celebrating this new partnership. And I just thought it was worth talking about a little bit. Uh, did you see this or, or know anything about this uh, kind of this this partnership happening? I did not, but that's really interesting, um, you know, to hear that, you know, James Beard is branching out like that. That's great. Yeah, it is. And um, there are a lot of, a lot of great, I mean, the chefs involved is people from Jose Andres to Katie Button to Carla Hall uh, to Ed Lee and Michelle Nishan. It was a, you know, a very nice list of people. And it will be interesting to see what 
this exactly now means moving forward. I mean, I read what it means, but <laughs> how it's implemented. Right. So um, kudos to everyone involved. It looked like a very cool gathering or event um, in D.C. And the other industry news I had this week, was there's an article on Inside Hook entitled SF's Top Chefs on the Massive Shifts Coming to Restaurants. Business as usual is no longer an option in the industry, but as these culinary leaders attest, solutions aren't easy to come by. And this was by Emily Monaco. And this is something we've definitely been talking about on my show over the years, just about, you know, moving forward with restaurants to make ends meet. And uh, chefs in, in this article included David Nafeld of Cafico, who's been on my podcast, and just kind of talking about what's necessary for the future of restaurants, whether that means how to make it, uh, some examples of they were giving of uh, maybe maybe you need to charge for no-shows and cancellations or have like a prepaid ticketed charge that some restaurants do and just like adopting a new model. Maybe it's a prefix model, but just how it's so hard to to run a restaurant and make it work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that the financial models of restaurants are really challenging for sure. And it's been it's been interesting to watch what's happening with Noma. You know, yes. Another restaurant that I think the menu uh, took some clues from, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we t I talked to we. There's been a lot of talk about Noma um, since um, the article came out a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times, and that they're going to be closing at the end of 2024, changing their model. So, yeah, people are talking about this. I think people are. I mean, this is a pretty long piece, and I, as much as as much as they they interviewed all these chefs, and there's there's ideas. I still think everyone's trying to figure it out. Yeah, I mean, most chefs are not business people, right? Um, and they require um, the support and the backbone of uh, partners or backers who can help them scale. Um, and grow and just remain remain solvent. Frankly, um, you know, Charlie Trotter had his dad. Grant Ackett's had Nick Kakonis. Um, you know, you need restaurant groups like the Boca Group in Chicago, or you know, Catch. Um, if you look at what's happening with them, which is a different yeah. kind of restaurant altogether, but you know, there are ways to scale and be successful. You know, the trick is to, to, you know, are you willing to be that way? I think if you're running a one-off restaurant that does three Michelin star food every night, I mean, that's, that's like a real challenge because you can't, um, scale, you can't amortize those costs over multiple restaurants. You know, you, it's all sunk into this one place. Right. So yeah, no, it's, 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 it's true. And um, yeah, we'll see what, what the, what the future holds. <laughs> so keep having these conversations and, and actually I'll put a little, I mean, a little plug in for, I have a book coming out soon um, entitled Chef Wise Life Lessons from Leading Chefs Around the World. And, and it's with Fiden and I have over a hundred chefs around the world who contributed and offering their advice of what it does take to run a restaurant and be successful from, and, you know, talking about PNL and under either needing, understanding yourself, the financial side of the business or having good people that can guide you, you know, because right. restaurants are a business. That's right. That's right. And, you know, the restaurant business is really unique too, when you think about how much waste, you know, there is in the world, right. When it comes to food and whatnot, like I can't even begin to wrap my brain around, you know, restaurant management from that perspective, like, you know, how, how do you put a price on, on every, you know, little brunoise of a carrot, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's crazy to me. It is. It is. But it's like, it's a love. It's a love for the industry and love for restaurants and making it work and, and figuring it out, you know, following that passion. So but you got to make ends meet. So totally. uh, to be continued. 
before my solo dining experience, I have two announcements. First, my friends at Curious Elixirs are offering you, all my listeners, their Curious Elixirs to try. So if you're curious about Curious, I suggest you go to CuriousElixirs.com and use the code all in the industry. It's all caps, all in word, and you can get 100% off your first purchase. If you don't know what Curious Elixirs is, they're booze-free craft elixirs and spirits infused with herbs and adaptogens to help you or your guests unwind and improve your bottom line. I'm a big fan, and um, yeah, give it a try. Go to their website, and um, um, yeah, they have really delicious products, So, uh, and, and the New York Times has two years in a row named them the best non-alcoholic drinks, so there you go on that. First round is on me. And the second announcement, it's the 14th annual Taste Awards. And this show, my show here, All in the Industry, has been nominated for three Taste Awards, including Viewer's Choice for Best Food or Drink Radio Broadcast, Viewer's Choice for Best Food or Drink Podcast, and Viewer's Choice for Best Single Topic Series. Very honored to be nominated for these categories, but now I need you to vote. And voting goes till to, um, not tomorrow, till Friday, um, so the seventeenth. So if you if you go to, um, I have a link in my uh, on my all in the industry Instagram page at all industry. You could go to link in bio and you could um, go there and and vote. Um, which would be awesome. And also, Rebecca, I saw you received a, a taste award as well. Is that correct? That's what I'm being told. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> um, it's been an interesting, you know, rollout of the way that they uh, announced those. I, I yeah. all of a sudden awoke one morning and there it was. I was like, oh, that's so exciting. So it's great. Yes. Yeah. Congratulations. It's very cool. Because, yeah, this, this what I'm up for, these three awards are viewer's choice. So it's like a nomination period and then it gets voted upon. Um, but there are different categories but congratulations that's awesome thank you yeah um i i guess it was best feature documentary or feature film one of the two but it was fe feature length film oh that's great yeah and then apparently we were nominated for several other categories best producer best i, I guess i got best director a nominee a nomination for that and there's going to be a whole awards are you coming out for the awards ceremony in march at the writers guild it should be great i as of right today no but you never know i'm i'm someone who likes to travel so maybe <laughs> well, we'll see definitely should um if you do come out here sherry i would love to find a place to go together for dinner because um I would love that. I will. I, I plan. I definitely plan to get out to L.A. sometime this year if it's not in March, um, because as I mentioned, I have a book coming out and I have some L.A. chefs in my book. And I definitely want to go do something out there with that. So I will I will keep you posted. Um, so, um, OK, so it's time for my solo dining experience. So this week it's at a place, a special place in New York City called La Bernadette. Here's the rundown, the location, 155 West 51st Street in Midtown Manhattan, New York City. The concept, it's a refined seafood restaurant. It's received many accolades since it opened in New York in 1986. It's originally from Paris. The owners are Maggie Lacoz and Chef Eric Repair and Chef Eric Gastel and Executive Pastry Chef Orlando Soto are the chef and Executive Pastry Chef and Eric is the overall overseeing chef and owner. So why did I go? Well, this this was um, flashing back a little bit to August last year. I was celebrating a, a big milestone of my own, a personal milestone, and I decided to treat myself. So my experience, I made a reservation for one for lunch, and um, I was warmly greeted. I I had been to the I had been to Lebrendon before um, most recently with my my friend Rita Jamey who is good friends with a lot of the the team there and so um, I I was able to connect with um, one of the the sommeliers Kim and a few of the other servers and people and meet them through my relationships which was very nice and um, I sat at a, a table along I was at the banquette looking out over the kind of in the middle of the dining room or looking at the middle of the dining room it's like a big rectangular 
space. Um, and I had, I had a really, really lovely time. So what I get, so at lunch, they have a three course prefix and they have three sections. They have raw, barely touched and lightly cooked, all referring to seafood. And you could pick, you pick three and, or, or you pick two courses really from these and then a dessert course, if you want dessert to, for the three courses. Um, so, and they start out, they brought out complimentary salmon rillette, which is like a seafood spread with toast points. And they have these amazing breads they come by and offer you like four different kinds. And then what I got with my prefix, I got the tuna, which was layers of thinly pounded yellowfin tuna with foie gras and toasted baguette and chives. I got the hiramasa, which is a grilled yellow amberjack. And it came with roasted mataki, bone marrow, red wine, bordelaise. And for dessert, I got what they called cheesecake, and it was a filled squash blossom with blackberry sorbet. So it was kind of cool. It looked like a squash blossom, but it was cheesecake. Um, and then I also got an off-the-menu item, which I knew about, because if you know, you know, and now you're going to know. Um, they have this egg dish that's like a signature uh, dessert that was created by Michael Lasconis when he was the pastry chef, and it's um, milk chocolate pot de creme caramel foam maple syrup and grain of salt all presented in an eggshell and it's like divine <laughs> just start there my take the egg divine and the whole meal was I mean I this another signature thing I, I feel always need to get when I go is this tuna which is just beautiful presentation and prepared with the foie gras and it's just a one-of-a-kind dish uh, I really enjoyed the her Hiramasa, perfectly cooked. I loved the mushrooms that came with it. And the dessert was great. It was very cool. It was a original, original presentation. So the ambiance, so this this restaurant was built in the 1980s. It's it's pretty modest for a fine dining restaurant, I would say. Um it's 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 a, a rectangular space. It has shaded windows. Um, um it's very it's elegant but comfortable at the same time. Uh tablecloths on on all the tables and in the front there's a lounge area which I've also had dinner in the lounge it's just connected to the dining room and it has a nice bar and it's a little, a little more casual so I'd say it's perfect for a date business or dining solo interesting tidbit so one of the reasons this restaurant came to mind for me this week was Pete Wells and the New York Times just re-reviewed La Bernadette, giving it once again four stars. It's had four stars since it opened, and Pete had reviewed it back in 2012. So he went back, um, and it's gave it back. They can keep their four stars, and um, they also have three Michelin stars. So this is a very acclaimed restaurant. Um, and also, I'll say, Eric Repair is in my book, Chef Wise. I'm excited about that. Okay, so the cost of this meal was $128. Oh, I also had coffee, which is why the 28, um, the prefix is $120 for three courses, and that's not including tax and gratuity. And lunch, I think, is a really, uh, it's, it's a, you know, more economical way to go for this fine dining experience, because dinner is $198 for four courses, and then they also have um, even more elaborate chef's tasting menu of eight courses. Uh, for one or uh, for two ninety eight, so lunch is lunch is a good way to go if uh, if you want the experience, but not to spend as much. Would I go back? Yes, the website is lebernadin Instagram at lebernadin ny. There you go, my mouthful of a solid dining experience. Um, Rebecca, have you been to lebernadin I have not, but Eric was very supportive of the film. In fact, he was someone that we really wanted to interview. Uh, for the movie and and we couldn't swing it because of COVID, unfortunately. But my goodness, uh, that's hot, tops on my list, really. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's a hard it's a hard to get reservation, but not impossible. I mean, I just made it on my you know on my own just a couple months ahead, and um, it's special. And um, yeah, it's 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 there's a reason it it maintains its four stars. <laughs> Yeah. If you're a seafood lover, it's it's definitely worth uh, worth checking out. Yeah, I um I can't wait. Next time I go back to New York, I'll definitely I definitely am going for sure. Okay, cool. Well, when you're here, we should definitely make plans whether it's it's that or something else, but we should yeah, that would be fun too. Totally. 
Okay, it's time for my final question. So my next guest is David Kinch, another amazing chef. He's an internationally recognized chef with more than two decades of culinary excellence at his three Michelin-starred restaurant, Manresa, in Los Gatos, California. This Manresa closed at the end of last year. David is now, uh, he's the proprietor of restaurants The Bywater, Mentone, and Manresa Bread. Um, he's also in my book, Chef Wise. And so, Rebecca, can you please ask a question for David? Uh, I guess my question for David would be, you know, winning three Michelin stars is remarkable and a wonderful achievement. And it's, it, you know, it reflects the quality and excellence, you know, that you and your staff pour into the dining experience every night. I guess my 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 question would be what are the unexpected pitfalls or downs what's the unexpected downside of having gotten three Michelin stars? Okay, that's a good question. Thanks. <laughs> Not like I'm I mean of course it is. Of course it is. Um I will ask him. I will see what he has to say. Um I went to Manresa once many years ago, and I had a really lovely experience. So I'm glad I got to experience it before it closed. Yeah, I've read great things. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's he's another talent. So I will find out. And that's the show. Thank you so much for joining me, and congratulations on all of your success and this beautiful new film that you put together on Charlie Trotter. Um, it's really special and I'm glad I got to see it and get to know you. Well, Sherry, I have to say coming from someone who knew Charlie as well as you did, it means a lot. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I mean, uh, I mean it and um, congratulations. And uh, I hope to see you somewhere soon, LA, New York, or maybe Maldives. <laughs> Maldives, I know, I know, I know. It's uh, it's uh, it's crazy. You got to work hard and play hard, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, um, thank you. My guest today has been Rebecca Halpern. She's an award-winning documentary filmmaker who directed the recently released documentary "Love Charlie: The Rise and Fall of Chef Charlie Trotter." You can find her website at. She's at RebeccaHalpern.com. Uh, Rebecca, is there a better way or a connection to find the Love Charlie movie online? It's available on Apple and Amazon, uh, and you can rent it or purchase it there. So, um, yeah, check out our Instagram feed. There's a lot of behind the scenes and other cool stuff at Love Charlie Movie. Awesome. And you can follow me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are BayerPublicRelations.com, SherryBayer.com, and AllInTheIndustry.com. All of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Check out my new book, ChefWise Life Lessons from Leading Chefs Around the World by Fiden. It's available on Fiden's website for pre-order at Fiden.com or pretty much anywhere you can get books nowadays. Um, and it's all one word, Chef Wise, if you want to look that up. Thanks to my engineer today, Armin. Thanks again to Rebecca. And thank you to Ray Harris, who we mentioned earlier. Really wonderful to know him and uh, have the connection to Charlie Trotter all these years. I am your host and producer, Sherry Bayer. I am going to be off the next two weeks because I have a big birthday coming up and some travel, which I'll share when I get back. I will have my show with David Kinch on Wednesday, March 8th. I hope you'll tune in then. Until then, stay well, and thank you as always for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio, supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.